Well, tonight, like I said, we're going to go through the, the whole chapter of John 17. Jesus' whole prayer. It's 26 verses long. We're going to talk about Jesus prays for us as he gets ready to leave. What he prays for his first disciples and what he prays for himself. Remember where we've come from. Jesus has just finished all the way back in John 13 is where he starts. He washed his disciples' feet as an example of the kind of sacrifice he was about to make. And said, now you have no excuse. No excuse to not act like your master. The one who washes people's feet. You must do the same. There's nothing holding you back from serving. And then he goes on to tell them, A new commandment I have given you. To love one another. And he goes through in chapter 14, 15, 16, his final instructions to his disciples. Things like, I'm going to send another advocate for you. One who will defend you against the world and also will prosecute the world for its evil. Things like, I am leaving, but I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going back to my father. Things like, the world will hate you. And in light of that hate, the church must stand even more so for the principle of loving one another and building each other up. And he ends by saying, as we read last week, in this world, you will have tribulation. But don't forget, don't forget, I have overcome the world. In me, you will have peace because I have overcome the world. Take heart, take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And now... We start in John 17. Jesus says this. Jesus spoke these things. That's referring to the whole discourse we just read that he spoke. Jesus spoke these things and then he lifted his eyes up to heaven. That's a posture of prayer. He's looking up to his God and his Father. He's in a posture of prayer. And he said this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. You know, traditionally this this passage has been known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's interesting. One thing I think we should know, you'll notice the title I put on there was Jesus' Greater Prophet Prayer. What's interesting is that this prayer that Jesus has, unlike so much of what we read in the New Testament and other places, is actually not focused on sacrifice. Now there's no doubt one of the key elements of what Jesus does on the cross is sacrifice, right? We all know that. It's throughout all of Paul. Right? It's throughout all of Hebrews where he is explicitly called the great high priest. It's throughout all of these different parts of the New Testament. But John 17, its focus is elsewhere. Its focus is actually not on the sacrificial element. 
but its focus is on the revealing that the cross does. As we read this passage, I want you to, to think about that. What is John saying as he speaks through this prayer? Actually, the thing he's focused on is that what Jesus is about to do reveals who God is. So I would argue that in many ways, this is not a prayer that is meant to be priestly, mediatorial, that it's, it's a sacrifice, that's a priestly dynamic. It's actually meant to be revelatory in John 17. It's meant to show us who God is. That's a prophetic role. Jesus, remember, throughout this gospel, who has he been that we've seen in the gospel of John? The prophet greater than Moses. In fact, it's at pains from the very beginning of the gospel to show that Jesus is greater than Moses, hasn't it been? In fact, from the very beginning in the first chapter, what does it say? That we, we received of the law through Moses, but... Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, right? From the very beginning of this gospel. And when we went in John 6 and he did the multiplying of the bread, what was the story they went to? The wilderness wanderings. And remember, Jesus says, it wasn't Moses who provided bread for you. It was my Father. It's God. And Jesus provides bread for them in a way even greater than Moses. Remember, he is the true bread from heaven. There's throughout this gospel then this example of Jesus compared to the, the quintessential Old Testament prophet, which is Moses. The one greater than every other prophet, Moses. And Jesus is greater still. Jesus is greater still. And it's interesting because the prayer is an intercessory prayer, right? Intercessory meaning he's praying on behalf of others which is something the prophets did often, actually. Moses intercedes for the people of Israel all the time throughout his story, as did Abraham intercede for, for Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham also is called a prophet of God in the Old Testament. The prophets, in, in what we would call the prophetic books, do the same thing. They intercede for God's people. They pray on their behalf that they would return and repent. Daniel does his great national prayer when he prays a, a prayer of repentance, that the nation should repent. That's a prophetic act. And so in that stream, Jesus prays this prayer, an intercessory prayer on other people's behalf, I think as a prophet. Because everything he has to say is about what he's about to do, revealing God. Now, the sacrificial element, I, I don't ever want to lose that. That's key to what Jesus did in the cross, obviously. But that has been explored really in depth, really thoroughly. What hasn't been explored as well in Christian scholarship is Jesus the revealer of God. It's still been explored, but, but the idea that the cross is actually the moment in which God is most clearly revealed. It's actually the moment in which we see who God is most obviously, most evidently, in the person of Jesus on the cross. That has not been as explored as the sacrificial themes. And John 17 wants to talk about Jesus revealing God. So keep that in mind as we go through it. Listen to what Jesus has to say. So like he said, Jesus 
is talking about his hour. The hour is here. The hour to glorify. And Jesus prays, glorify me. Glorify your son. He's talking about himself, of course. Glorify me that I may glorify you. In the cross, Jesus and the Father are mutually glorifying each other. Jesus glorifies the Father by his obedience and submission. And actually, the Father is glorifying Jesus because he's returning him to where he was before the world began, to the position and authority that he had with his Father before the world began. We'll see that as we read. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you in the same way as you gave him authority over all flesh. So Jesus is saying, you've, Father, you've given the Son rule over all humanity. In that same way, you've given me the authority to give eternal life to all those that you've given me. Jesus not only has the role of, of authority, but he has the role of Savior, doesn't he? He has the ability to give life, to give life to those that the Father has given him. And listen to this. Remember, we talked about revealing, right, the knowledge of God. What does Jesus say eternal life is? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and that they might know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is actually the knowledge of God. That's what Jesus says here. Eternal life is to know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he sent. Knowledge obviously entails all of the things that we think of when we think of the intimacy of relationship. This is not just some head knowledge. This is not just some, oh yeah, I've heard about that guy, so I know him. No, this is the language of intimacy, of closeness, of relationship. Eternal life is to know intimately the Father and the Son. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus says, the work that you set out before me, Father, I've done. Jesus' ministry is wrapping up with this prayer. Jesus is looking towards what he's about to do, what he's about to accomplish, and what he has already done. And he knows this is the climactic moment. And he says, I've done what you've set out for me to do. So I'm here at this moment to finish it. Jesus says, I glorified you. I gave the Father honor while I was on earth. And accomplished the work. It says, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Lord, give me back the glory that I once had. Now, Jesus, was he glorious when he was here on earth? Of course he was. 
Of course he was. He revealed the Father. But there is a glory in Jesus that was veiled while he was here on earth. Jesus didn't just appear in majesty and in radiance and blind all the enemies of God with his power and his might. Jesus looked just like us, a human. He walked around the earth. He got hungry. He got tired. He got thirsty. He may have gotten sick. I don't know. It never says in the, in the scriptures, but I'm sure he would have. He lived a human life, and his glory was veiled to us who, who would have seen him while he was here on earth. And he says, Lord, I wish to have that glory that I had with you when I was with you before creation. Bring me back to that glory, Lord. Jesus says, I have manifested your name. What does manifested mean? It means he made known. He made known. I have made known your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. What a rosy assessment of them. Jesus is gracious from our end, from our eyes and how he assesses them. But I think he speaks true. Yeah, maybe they haven't been able to understand the depth of who Jesus is. Maybe they haven't been able to understand that he's about to die. Maybe they haven't understand, understood the need for a, a resurrected Messiah. Maybe they haven't even obeyed perfectly. I would say, obviously they haven't, right? They haven't obeyed every little commandment of God, and yet they are the ones who have believed. They are the ones, unlike John 6, which we read, remember many disciples said to Jesus, you give hard teachings. And they walked away. No, these 12 and any other disciples who stuck with Jesus have, have walked with him through all of his ministry. They have stuck it out. They have kept God's word by believing in his son. Believing that his son is who he said he was. They were not perfect. They did not keep every commandment. But they believed in the Messiah. So Jesus says, they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. And these disciples, they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. Jesus says that. that they, he, they believed. They believed who Jesus was. And then Jesus prays a prayer on their behalf. This is a prayer on behalf of those first disciples, the first people to believe in him. He says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, 
and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. These disciples have honored Jesus. They have glorified him. They have given him honor while he walked on the earth. These men who seemed so frail and weak and so quick to, to be impulsive like Peter and all the mistakes they made, Jesus says, no, they glorified me by their belief. They honored who I was. And so I ask on their behalf. Jesus still hasn't said what he's asking yet. <laughs> but remember, Jesus makes, again, a, a distinction here. He's not asking on behalf of the world. This is for my disciples. This is not a prayer for the world. This is a prayer for the disciples. And we, got, we, we have to remember, we've got to remember that there is a distinction. God loves the world. We remember John 3.16. God loves the world. He, for, for God so loved the world. But, however much he might love the world, he has a special love for believers. A deeper more relational, more connected love for those who believe and glorify Him. We cannot lose sight of that. There is something unique about the love that God has for those who believe in Him, for those who believe in Jesus the Son. And that is special. So Jesus says, not on the world's behalf, but on the behalf of my disciples, and then he says what he's praying for them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Jesus notes he's leaving. Here's where he says what his prayer is. Holy Father, keep them in your name. The name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. That they may be one even as we are. Jesus' great prayer for them is that Jesus, uh, excuse me, that the Father would keep them in his name, that they would be protected as they bear the identity as God's representatives, because they are in his name, the powerful name of God. That the Lord would keep them. Believing would keep them persevering in faith under that name. That's one. Two, that they would be one. That they would be one. Unity is Jesus' great prayer for the church. Unity. That they would be one. Who's he compare that to? Who, the church as disciples are meant to be one. Who is that to be compared to? One like who? One like Jesus and the Father are one. That is mind-boggling. To think that Jesus would pray that we would have the unity that he and his Father have. That's the unity that in John 14, Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. 
And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't yet know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's the unity Jesus is praying for the church. That kind of unity. What's the third thing he prays? Well, I was with them. I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Before Jesus tells us the third point, he says this. Jesus says, I, I was the one keeping them and guarding them. It's an intimate prayer, and it's really interesting, because Jesus is praying that the Father would take over the duties that he's been doing while he's been here on earth. He says, Lord, Holy Father, would you keep them in your name? Would you watch over them and guard them? Would you help them be unified? Because I am leaving. While I was here, I guarded them. I kept them in your name. I protected them. I unified them. And now I come to you. Father, would you do what I can no longer do presently? What I can no longer do because I will no longer walk amongst them in this moment as I leave and go to the cross. Would you do it, Father? Verse 13, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus prays that we would be filled with his joy. We would be filled with his joy. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Again, these things Jesus are saying, these things that Jesus says are staggering. How does Jesus compare the way the disciples are not of the world? What does he compare it to? The way that he's not of the world. Jesus says, in the same way I'm not of the world, they are not of the world. We are completely different. We're completely dichotomous. We're not like the world. We are different in the same way that Jesus is different. Jesus makes a clear distinction between those who are his followers and those who are not. Here's the fourth thing he prays. I do not ask you, even though they are not of the world, just like I'm not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of it. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. That's his fourth prayer point. Jesus prays for his disciples that we would be kept in his name, that we would persevere in faith. One, two. He prays 
that we would be unified. Three, he prays that we would have his joy because he spoke these things to us. And four, he prays that we would be protected from Satan, from the evil one's plans, from his dark desires for us. He prays that his father would protect us from him, protect us from the evil one. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to make holy. It means to set apart. Lord, set them apart in your truth. Make them different. Make them have a purpose. That is your purpose, God. For their sakes, excuse me, as you sent me into the world, I now send them into the world. Jesus is sending his disciples into the world in the same manner in which he was sent. Now they have a mission. They have a work to do. Jesus has accomplished his work, and now he commissions us for ours. He's saying, I've sent my disciples into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says, I'm setting myself apart for what I'm about to do, so that they too could be set apart for what they have to do. Verse 20. When we're mentioned, verse 20, John 17, verse 20, we are mentioned. Believers, 2,020 years later, from Jesus' birth till now. And we are mentioned in the scriptures in this prayer from Jesus that he prayed to his Father. Lord, I do not ask on behalf of these first disciples alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That they may also be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus says that we who come after and all the generations that have come, every believer that has ever lived from these first disciples till today, are called to be unified and one in the same way that the Father and the Son are, are indwelling each other. <laughs> We're called to be unified like that. With believers throughout this world, no matter what our geography is, no matter how far we may be separated, no matter how different our situations may be, the Christian in Japan, the Christian in Malawi, the Christian anywhere in the world, the Christian in the United States, are all bound. They're bound together in the unity of his spirit that he poured out on each one of us. A bond that is stronger than any unifying thing that can unite humans. More than any nation, more than any family, more than any name under which people could align. 
under the name of Christ, in the power of his spirit, every Christian, in every place in this world at this moment, and at every moment, in the past, all the way, extending back to creation for those who have believed in God, and every person extending into the future until Christ returns who will believe in him are called to be one, even as Jesus and the Father are one. That is how important unity and community are to the, the nature of our faith. Not only has God given us that unity. It's a blessing that we've already received. God has given us that unity just by nature of giving us his spirit. We already have that unity. And yet we are called to be perfected in it. We are called to walk it out. We are called to live that unity out in the life of the church. And we are called, as you'll see in the next few verses, like I said, we are called to be perfected in it. And what will that unity show? What does that unity of all Christians show? It shows the world that Jesus was sent by the Father. That's what Jesus says that they may be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity is the sign to the world that Jesus was sent by the Father. How's that for importance? Verse 22, the glory which you have given me I've given to them. The glory which the Father gave to Jesus, Jesus gave to us. We have that honor. We have that glory of bearing the name of the Father because we are in Christ. Jesus has given us that glory what he says in verse 22. And why did he give us that glory? He says it again. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one. Just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me, like we already talked about. And he adds a second purpose. And, and loved them, even as you have loved me. And as if every other statement Jesus has said in this prayer is not unbelievable enough, this one takes the cake. This is the most staggering of all the statements Jesus has said so far. Our unity is the sign to the world that Jesus was sent by the Father. Yes, we just talked about that. And it's also the sign to the world 
Our unity is the sign to the world that the Father loves us. How does he love us? In the same way he loves the Son. That is unfathomable. That the Father, who's unique, perfectly obedient, completely submissive, 100% dependent, always did what the Father asked, always spoke his words, always did his deeds, the love that the Father has for that Son is the love he has for you, if you believe. We could never dream of living up to the standard that Jesus has set in sonship. The Father loves us like he loves Jesus. So, why are we called to unity? More than anything, we're called so that we can show the world, help them believe that Jesus was sent by the Father and that the Father loves us just like he loves his Son. Why? Why is that going to matter to the world? Why is that going to impact them? Because our unity should be so unique, so unlike the world, which is characterized by disunity and divisiveness and hate and self-service. Our church, and I mean that just as in our local church and, of course, the, the, the capital C church, the unity of all Christians, should be so great, so unworldly, so beautiful, so full of love, so full of service, so full of kindness, so connected, so intimate, that the world wants to be part of it. It's so out of their realm of understanding. How could anyone love like that? How can anyone serve like that? How can anyone care about another person like that? I've never seen it. The church should be so much perfected in unity that when people see it, they are drawn into it. They are changed by it. They are attracted to it that they too want to be loved the way the church loves each other. They too want to be served and serve the way the church serves each other. They want to feel that glory, the glory which we've already experienced. They want to experience it. The love that we've given to each other to forgive each other to repent to each other, to confess to each other, to build each other up, to support each other. They want to experience those things. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, 
be with me where I am so that they might see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays we'd be with him where he's at in his Father's presence so that we might see who he is an unveiled shape. That we might look upon him and see the glory that he has always had, that he's always deserved. That we might see the love that is lavished upon him by his Father. Face to face. Jesus prays that we would be with him so that we could see his glory and in seeing his glory we would be caught up in it. Caught up in the glory of the Son and in the love of the Father. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these disciples have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus ends his prayer praying that we would continue to know him that he would continue to make himself known even after the cross and resurrection. So that the love that the Father has for the Son would be in us and that Jesus himself would be in us. How do all of those realities of that great prayer come to pass? Through Jesus' cross and resurrection and most specifically then by pouring out his Spirit. How does Jesus come to be in us? By the indwelling of the Spirit. How does the Father's love come to reside in us? By the indwelling of the Spirit. The Father and the Son are one and mutually love each other. Theologians, great theologians from the past have said that the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. It's the love of the Father and the Son personified a love that's so great it must be a person. And that person is the Holy Spirit. I think that's a good analogy. All of those things, all of that unity, all of that glory, all of those things come to reside in us because Jesus, in this gospel, chapter 20, is going to pour out his Spirit upon his disciples. And with that, we've ended John 14 to 17. Really the greatest Trinitarian revelation in the entire Bible. In which we see the three persons of the, of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all at work. All unified. And in that, God revealed who he was to us. A truth that was hidden in history, 
that we did not know in the days of the Old Testament, but God revealed to us in the New Testament that God is triune. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in that reality is found redemption. The Father has planned redemption. The Son has enacted it. And the Spirit has applied it to each one of us who believe. We need to remember to praise God for who He is and, and be thankful that we know more. We know more than, than those who had come before, especially those Old Testament saints who did not know the revelation that we are privileged enough to have by having the Holy Spirit dwell in us and by being on this side of Jesus' cross and resurrection. We are privileged because we have eternal life, which is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And we know him. We know who God is. My prayer is that we continue to, to delve deeper into that knowledge week by week, day by day, as we spend time with him, as we think upon him, as we look back and recognize what Jesus did, what he accomplished for us, and as we examine it and how it impacts every single moment of our lives in the way we live out our, our excuse me, in the way we live out our faith and the way we treat each other and the way we have relationships and build them and the way we grieve with each other and the way that we rejoice with each other that Jesus impacts every single part of our lives. Let me bless you tonight. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person in this room. I thank you that you're here. I thank you, Lord, that, that you sent your Son who we would not have known unless you sent him. And in fact, we didn't even know you as we should until you sent him because he is the clearest revelation of you. Lord, thank you that he poured out your spirit upon us that we might all receive salvation. Without him, we would not have received it. Thank you that Jesus did that work so that we might have salvation. Thank you that in the Holy Spirit, we have your presence always with us, in us. No one can ever take that from us. That God, you yourself dwell in us. And you will carry us through to those final days when we see Jesus and the Father face to face. Thank you that you will never leave nor never abandon us. We're so grateful we have you. I pray each one of us tonight would long to know you deeper, long to know you more long to have deeper and more full relationship with you for each one of us. I pray you would reveal yourself again. Jesus, reveal the Father to us this week. Reveal the greatness of his love to each one of us in this room this week. We're thankful for you. We trust in you. In Jesus' name, by your Spirit's power, amen.